Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from North Carolina, actually, in the Smoky Mountains. Thanks so much for listening. Um, apologies for the audio quality of this intro. The interview has amazing quality. Don't worry. I'm just in North Carolina and didn't bring my usual microphone setup from Los Angeles. The sponsor for this and all episodes is Centralis Wine. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to protect or benefit the environment and my community with every business and winemaking decision. I envision a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. Centralis Wines feature foraged prickly pears, urban perennial polyculture wine garden produced grapes, gleanings from urban fruit trees, dry farmed century-old vines, and organic and biodynamic viticulture of all types and shapes and sizes. If this sounds interesting to you, join our email list or our wine club and learn more at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. My guest for this episode is Drew Herman. Drew is the vineyard manager at JK Carrier Wines in Oregon, and wow, listening to him makes me want to drink anything made from fruit that he helps grow. Before we recorded this, Drew gave me an outline of things that he wanted to talk about, and he titled it Microbial Democracy. And what he discusses here blows open doors of understanding about the way soil and plants work from a fundamental perspective. You will not be able to think about growing vines or anything else in the same way after listening to this. Drew explains how the soil has a voice. He introduces the new findings about microbial quorum sensing and signaling and how the soil is like a big ongoing chemical conversation, a UN of microbes. We then get into epigenetics and how soil microbes actually impact not only vine health, but also wine flavor and so much more. He gives specific and practical applications for this knowledge and promotes independent science and freedom from purchased bottle solutions to viticultural problems. Beware, this episode may make you smarter, freer, and more full of wonder. A special thanks to James Endicott of Venocity Selections for introducing me to Drew. I think once you hear what Drew has to share, you'll want to thank James too. Enjoy. Drew, thanks so much for doing this. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to be here. For, uh, by way of introduction, can you just sort of tell you know, where you are and what you're doing, who you are, what your position is, where you came from and how you got there? Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe I'll start chronologically, sort of. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, I currently am the vineyard manager at JK Carrier, which is a winery up on the top of Parrot Mountain in the Willamette Valley. Um, cool spot. Love it there. Great yeah. team. Um, but I arrived that way via, uh, I'll try to keep it sort of short, maybe, but yeah. Um, I was born in Colville, Washington, which is like the way northeast corner of Washington mm. State, up by Idaho and Canada. And my family has a property up there where for generations we raised cattle. Um, pretty low input uh, as far as the farming was going until, you know, the government scientists told us that we needed to do things a certain way and that kind of cashed the business. Um, and so what we still have up there is a, a regenerative tree farm. 
um, that we try to harvest sustainably. Uh, so course, when I was 12 lumber. years, what's that for lumber for lumber? Yeah. It's, yeah, okay. uh, it's Western larch or everybody up there calls it tamarack, but it's okay. cool. Cause it, it's, uh, self seeding every year. Cause we have squirrels, lots of them. Ah, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was 12, we moved to Oklahoma, which was very different. Um, wow. it was, it was, we moved to Bethel acres, Oklahoma, which is kind of, well, it's all, uh, tribal land where we grew up. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very different experience from the mountains moving to scrub oak and prairie. But yeah. it was uh, really interesting because it was very rural and I got to have quite a few rural experiences as a kid. One of those was uh, joining FFA, which is Future Farmers of America. I'm sure you've seen oh, those wow. cool blue jackets at all the natural wine fairs. <laughs> I, I haven't actually, oh, but then man. I'm not a huge attendee at fairs in general. But every um, the last couple of tastings I've been to, somebody's had an FFA jacket on, trying to be cool. Oh, so so cringe to me because they're they're um, terrible and just bring back <laughs> memories of uh, embarrassment. And <laughs> gotcha. But uh, um, anyway, in FFA, I was you know introduced to animal husbandry and which was great. I showed pigs and, and sheep and cattle nice. and, you know, delivered pigs and all sorts of fun things. And um, that, but we also had a horticulture program, which my mom kind of pushed me to do because she really liked gardening and flowers. And so does my grandma. And mm. I, so I decided that I would participate in the horticulture program. And then turned out I really, really liked it and was good at it. And so I continue to do that. My team, I, I'm very proud of this. We won state in uh, the plant judging and identification contest my senior year. Nice. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, after that, I, I went to college and I wanted to study science because I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And about halfway through, I started taking more and more um, botany classes just because I was interested in them, but I hadn't really considered plants a career option for me. And as I kept studying it and I kept gardening at home and I couldn't read enough of these like books of alternative farming methods because I just felt like after studying ecology at school, that there must be a better answer to farming. And so I think the one of some of the first books I read were on permaculture and whole system design and, uh, you know, uh, one straw revolution, those kinds of oh, books. Yeah. How old were you at this point when you're reading these in your twenties or probably 21 or so? Okay. So like right in the college age. Yeah. Zone. <laughs> and, um, I really, really, really was, it wasn't just veggie gardenings, if, veggie gardening, if I'm going to be honest, I was also in college. So I definitely had a couple lights in the basement and was, uh, was growing uh, cannabis. It's legal there now, but. Um. <laughs> right. <laughs> but. Oh, yes. I mean, I definitely had a closet full at one point in my life as well. In <laughs> I like you already. Um <laughs> 
But, you know, the, the study of, of ecology and the study of these plant systems and then growing something in a completely controlled environment really opened up uh, my eyes to things that I'd never considered before. And the, the study of ecology really kind of like started to pique my interest more and more. And so I started taking these classes that they were like field ecology classes, like wetland ecology and like field mammalogy, and which were great. They were, there's a, a biological research station that the University of Oklahoma um, owns, which is where I went to school, Go Sooners. Okay. And we went down there for like a week or two at a time. And we would just like be in the field with, you know, professors from all over the place. And they would, you know, teach us to look at these systems in a much more observational way. Um, and that was great, you know, like experiences like being chest deep in the middle of a swamp and, you know, and, and feeling like just seeing nothing but beauty around you in a, in a place that other people might find very disgusting slash scary. Mm. And, um, you know, that's when I learned about how ecosystems truly developed and, and how ecosystems tend to find balance and some sort of stasis on their own. And that really kind of has, that's driven the rest of, of my career, I think, since then. Um, yeah. The idea that these, these environments can provide all the nutrition that they need, sort of, and, you know, can give life to all sorts of things, even in extremely thick and dense plantings where there's supposed to be, right, competition for nutrients and water. You, mm -hmm. you don't see it in these natural ecosystems, especially in prairies, right? Like the idea that so many plants can exist in such dense spacing in an area that maybe not, might not get that much water. Like, how does that, how does that make sense? And how does that make sense, you know, in light of everything that I had learned about agriculture and growing plants before, how does it make sense that there's, there's not really strong competition or competition like you'd think and that, you know, even in the absence of rainfall, these these things survive and thrive even. Mm. And so it just kind of made me question everything like competition, you know, irrigation, all of these things that were, you know, required to farm just didn't really match up to what nature does. And then I just started kind of thinking about exclusion and and what it means and and being reductive in your thought processes and that's and what that implies and realizing that exclusion and reduction leads to imbalance in all of these systems when when we go and remove something it's not necessarily going to be replaced by the thing that you want it might throw everything off or you know same goes with adding too much of something to an ecosystem can throw everything off so thinking about diversity being balance was kind of and and coming to realize that, that that's true in in all of life really like it's true yeah. it's true you know so, socially it's true we see the implications i think every day on the news of what happens when you exclude um it creates an imbalance and then you know like the whole system suffers because of it 
Um, same on a farm. If, if you're growing many crops and you have a diversified income when your row of lettuce bolts, it's not that big of a deal because you have enough other things to, to pad the system. And, and I think the opposite of balance is definitely like needs to be thought of as supremacy and suppression. Um, you know, the idea or the lack of understanding, um, even with good intention, can lead to unrealized or unrecognized impression. And that's kind of like where this talk is going, is, is our unawareness toward the natural world is, is actually going to lead to greater and greater imbalances. And even in society, you know, the goal should be for everyone to have a voice. And I also think that we should be giving a voice to nature in this process. Yeah. Yeah. It is part of our society. I mean, the, what we call nature is, is the society <laughs> yeah. and we're part of it really. Um, let me ask you, did this thinking, uh, I mean, this thinking developed, uh, you know, out of everything you were learning, did this come before, did it lead you to wine or did you, or did wine further inform it or, or really, you know, consolidate this kind of thinking for you working in vineyards, I guess. Yeah, well, it definitely consolidated it. I don't think it necessarily led me to wine. I was a, a veggie farmer by trade for many years, as was my wife. And okay. we worked on other people's farms. And, you know, I think we were, we're still very passionate veggie farmers. Um, okay. the, the truth is I had pretty much no interest in, in uh, winemaking or farming a vineyard. I was mostly led there because veggie farming doesn't pay very well. And I needed to make, you know, enough income to do things like eat and pay rent. <laughs> yeah. So um, my father-in-law was knew that I loved, I, I, I brewed beer, you know, well before I was 21. When I was 12 years old, I had made wine under my bed as part of a, a like a revolutionary era trade fair that, our school was making us do, and I had chose to be a tavern keep, um, nice. which was surprising to my uh, very religious parents, but they were cool, and they let me do it. They're like, there's no way that he'll make alcohol, but they didn't know that, uh, you know, alcohol kind of makes itself. <laughs> right, right. So I was successful. I got in a little bit of trouble for bringing that to school, but... I don't think anybody <laughs> knew what to do with me. So they were just like, well, <laughs> <laughs> he's really getting into his role. Yeah. Method acting. Sorry, I got sidetracked. Um, but um, yeah, my my father-in-law was was just like, I think that you should really, you know, think about getting into wine. Um, it's got all the all the farming, all the science, you know, uh, it pays apparently. And <laughs> And, <laughs> and, uh, <TVD>. yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I was like, okay, you know, maybe I'll consider, but I, I just, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure and I didn't really want to leave veggies. And, um, and, you know, one day I was kind of just like, felt like the, like the current farm I was on was just, you know, not making decisions based on, on any any sort of science or anything like that, and that frustrated me. And I was, and I think that every young person, you know, 
when they're working for people tend to see like all all the bad and what they could fix because when you're young you kind of know everything and then when you get a little older you're like wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i uh so i read they make my mother-in-law and my wife um were hanging out and with me and they just like wouldn't let it go they're like you need to apply for a wine job you need to do this you need to do this and basically wrote a resume for me and um i sent it out to like a whole bunch of wineries and that were hiring for harvest and almost all of them reached back out to me and asked if i could uh you know if they could interview me which really really surprised me because i felt like the bar to entry you know must be pretty high to get into the wine industry since I've grown up, I've realized really all you need is like an art history degree or something like that. <laughs> turns out the bar is really low. It turns out it's really low. <laughs> if you minored in like middle middle English poetry, you're good. <laughs> Get in there. Well, especially uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's even more true now because labor, the labor shortages are pretty crazy right now, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys are feeling it a little bit there. I mean, maybe you can talk about that, but. Um, yeah, yeah. No, all joking aside, I think there is like a real need for people to get into any kind of agriculture. And this, oh, you know, please, please do. We need, yeah, we need like uh, interested, thoughtful, smart people. You don't need to know anything. Like, we need compassionate people. We need all sorts. We need everybody. We need drivers yeah. too. You know. Yeah. Let's um, let's flip the script. I mean, farmers are cool. They're not the. They're not the dorky kids, uh, you know, that you were taught that they were back in high school, you know? like Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that every farmer I know is is incredibly intelligent and incredibly yeah. cultured. And um, it's I think farmers are some of the, the biggest heroes that we that we have. Um, yeah. It's interesting when, you know, like when you're if young, you're like, talk to yourself. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> If you do say so yourself. Yeah, if I do say Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, when, no, when I was young growing I'm up, totally I... Totally in agreement. Doctors, lawyers, farmers, those were like respected people, right? Like, Right, and, right. Yeah. And then you, the... you grow up and you realize that we, we respect them, just not financially, generally. Um, yeah. And, and I think that needs to change, uh, definitely, if we're going to attract you know, the best of the best to help fix our planet, we need to figure out a way to compensate people. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, I'm sorry. I, I wanted to just tease you a little bit, but. I, oh, I, please I joke, tease but... away. I'm, no. a, I'm a family of all boys. I don't think I've ever gone unteased. <laughs> um, but uh, so this is how, this is what led you into wine essentially was. Yeah. You put out your resume and you were like, do you need help with harvest? And everyone was like, yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> and you had your pick, I guess, of yeah. where you wanted to work. I, yeah, so how, I, did, you I did have point? my pick. And one of the, one of the picks was uh, a guy named Mike Halleck at Caravella Vineyards, who was, I was interested in working for somebody that had been doing it for quite some time, um, mostly, and that was a little older be, and, you know, somewhere that I could be, you know, kind of the right hand man, because I, I really wanted to learn everything. And um, he gave me the opportunity to do that, you know, which was really cool. He owns a, a vineyard called Carabella Vineyard, which is uh, actually just down the street from where I currently work. So it's, oh, it's nice. good to be back up on that mountain. Nice. Um, 
but when I was there, you know, he he taught me every, every like everything that he knew and taught me processes and things like that. But there were still some questions that I had unanswered, and so I would just continually read and read and read, read everything I could on on winemaking and try to try to make sense of of the things that didn't make sense and. Um, which I think <laughs> drove him a, a little crazy sometimes because I just never stopped answering questions. But, you know, he, uh, instead of trying to keep me down, encouraged encouraged that. And he, um, uh, the vineyard management company that we worked with at the time was Results Partners. And, um, and I know you interviewed Lee Bartholomew. Uh, she's awesome. Yeah. I got to work for her for just kind of like, I don't know, it was like six or nine months or something like that while I worked at Carabella Vineyard and just go around and visit all the different vineyards and see all the different practices that people were doing and realized, you know, while working there that, you know, there's a thousand different ways to farm grapes and, you know, like being dogmatic and stuck on any one thing isn't going to teach you anything. Uh-huh. So... I worked there for a while, and then I went and worked at uh, Division Wine Company afterward, and oh, yeah. which was a, a cool spot. It was an urban winery, and what really intrigued me about the place was that they were, you know, making wine naturally, and that they had like I don't even know, like twenty-seven bottlings a year, all sorts of different varieties, things that wow. I would probably have to like work you know, multiple years at to even get to work with these kinds of grapes and in these styles. And they really push style and they really gave me a lot of freedom to to push style. And um, after and then during COVID, you know, uh, things got a little harder to pay the, the rent there. And so we ended up having to cut quite a bit of the staff. And then I was there pretty much alone for the first, you know, six months of COVID. And then um, after that, they needed to continue cutting staff too. And so I made the decision that, you know, like I needed, I needed to go back to the vineyard. I needed to, to farm. And so I started looking for something else and, uh, JK Carrier was hiring and I was like, well, okay, that'll be probably a good shortstop. Um, on my way to find something. And then when I got there, I realized that they did all the farming themselves and with the help of, of uh, outside crew for some larger jobs. But for the most part, um, Jim has been farming JK Carrier, you know, since its inception. And it's uh, it was it, suddenly I was like, wow, there's a, a lot to learn here, a lot to learn from this guy. He's he's hands down one of the best tractor drivers I've ever met, which is funny. <laughs> He's like a business owner and he should be doing other things, but he just loves being out there. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Well, that's great. So, I mean, I would love to, I mean, there's more I want to dig into what you were saying about, you know, ecology and how that has informed more of your thinking. Right. If I can, if I can ask you, because you brought it up and you had all these questions um, that you kept, you know, you kept asking and looking for answers about what, you know, these practices in the vineyards, what, you know, things may or may not be science-based. And, and, you know, I'm curious if you discovered things that might become in practice in a lot of vineyards that you think are, you know, not based in science and probably a waste of time at this point or, and vice versa, like things that people should be doing that they're not doing 
you know, for quality or for vine health or whatever? Like, do you have any examples of those kind of things? Sure. Like, okay. Some, some examples, um, I, the, might be somewhat incendiary. So I'd like to, <laughs> I would like to, uh, just say first, there's a thousand ways to farm grapes. There's no wrong way. I think some, right. some sites are just totally different. So you can't apply everything to every site. You really just have to be observant and look at what's around you. And, and maybe, maybe something that is, is a really bad choice, you know, in, on my vineyard could be a, a good choice on yours. Um, Tilling is so dumb. We have to stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that um, that there's strong water competition and nutrient competition is, is just um, false, except for young vines. But once a vine is established, you know, weeds are, are not your, your biggest problem. Um, it, the biggest problem could actually be you if you're going in there and, and tilling. And and I'm not saying you should never till. There's sometimes that you d- should definitely till if you have insanely compacted soils. Um, you know you're not doing yourself any favors by having tons of bunch grass. You know on top of that soil, further compacting it. So it might be a a good idea to to break it up. Hmm. Um, or say you have like a massive weed outbreak, which um, you know, like it might make sense to till and so um, maybe like a smother crop in place that will, mm. you know, prevent the we or outcompete the weeds. Um, but all of these, all of these methods, you know, they, they change the environment. Anytime you go in and you do something to your soil, you are doing what I was talking about earlier, you're reducing or excluding, which that has an environmental impact on the biology of the soil. And so when we use these methods, we need to really be thinking about um, what's, what's happening in the soil because of these methods. And I, and I guess I'll just get into it. it um, microbes have a voice. They, they truly do. Uh, the soil has a voice. Yeah. We are just now kind of understanding this voice. Um, we've, I think, forever viewed soil is dirt as this like um you know basically just a ton of minerals and some critters in there but the critters weren't necessarily all that important to us yeah and we started farming based on what wasn't there we would add there and and what we didn't want there we would try to remove and that was without any understanding of of you know the actual life that exists there but you know, that was as far as, as we knew. So because we thought we knew how the soil worked, we've been making really bad choices for a very long time. Mm. And so the soil itself, when I say it speaks, I mean, it actually speaks. Um, You have probably, somebody's probably said something about quantum signaling or or quorum signals, I mean, and uh, no, no, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say you might be the first, and I'm really excited to talk about this with you. So oh. yeah, if you can take it as if we've never heard of this before, what, great. What, are you, what the heck are you talking about? So, <laughs> so quorum signals is how cells um, understand the 
their population density, um, and they might make different choices based on, you know, their population density or, you know, they're basically all talking to each other through these, these chemicals. And on the outside of all of their cells, they have these chemoreceptors um, or certain proteins or things like that, and they can literally taste their environment. Um, and they see their environment that way, uh, different than how we see our environment with our eyes or hear our environment with our ears. They're, they're having just as robust communication, but they're doing it with these, these signals, these chemical signals to each other. Um, an example of this is uh, in wine would be like malolactic fermentation, where uh, onococcus will be fermenting sugars, will be fermenting everything that everybody else in that soup is eating until they reach a population density and there's enough of those chemicals out there. They're all producing this chemical that it switches a gene on and they change their digestive pathway and they start eating malic acid instead of sugar and they produce lactic acid um, mm-hmm. as a, as a um, excretion. Right. So, so this is happening in wine. This is also happening in the soil. Um, all of there's billions and billions of of microbes, mycorrhiza, things like that in just a few tablespoons of soil. And they are all, you know, in their life cycle, they're all producing these chemical signals. They're all talking to each other. Um, They're actually talking between species, which is crazy to think about, right? They know each other's languages. Um, Some know more than others. Some are extremely adapt and they know everybody's voice. Plants also um, understand and hear these signals and as well as mycorrhiza which, and molds, which those guys are like, they're amazing with what they can do with, with the information the soil is giving them. So since they're all talking, there's basically like this microbial UN is the best way to think of it. There's this like broad democracy where everybody's sending out signals. They're sending out the data and most of the data has to do with population numbers or environmental conditions um, or population numbers of somebody else, which is really interesting. Um, Say like, for instance, uh, trichoderma, a green soil mold might sense that there's quite a bit of anthracnose around them. They will literally tell the plant or they'll tell a mycorrhiza who tells the plant or vice versa. Sorry, it's complicated, (laughs) but they will literally tell the plant, hey, um, it's time to get that immune system kicking off. Like, we, we got to go. Disease is here. Like, you got to start thinking about this. And which I think is really fascinating, right? That a soil mold, a single-celled organism can, can tell a plant, hey, there's disease around you. Right. So what happens is, and quorum sensing is different than quorum signals, where quorum signals are, are really just... Um, kind of like what it like how it talks quorum sensing is when the total environment like i said the the microbial un they're all sending their voices out there and the soil itself will reach because of just the the data will reach a consensus on a quorum on how to move forward and this is really fascinating to me because even things like which seeds germinate is can be decided by quorum sensing 
which is super cool to me. So if, if the soil is, is highly, highly compacted or recently disturbed, the soil will tell those like certain species of that are like bioaccumulators like thistle or things like that, or um, daikon, it will tell those things to germinate and germinate rapidly. And it will actually suppress the germination of other seeds. I know. Crazy, right? That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, and they do other things too, like um, quorum sensing can initiate disease, um, which is really interesting. It can actually, it can actually give free reign to uh, pathogens to go ahead and, and kill its host plant. It can, I know. Why why would it do that? (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps that plant isn't where it should be. Hmm. You know, interesting. Yeah. Or perhaps, perhaps they can't survive um, on that host plant because of environmental conditions for the host plant. So they basically are like, okay, okay, we'll stop protecting this thing. Go ahead and take it down. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's really interesting <laughs> to me. But there's other things that are even more interesting. Um, there, like some microbes, for instance, anthracnose. In the presence of a strong population of other little critters, can actually change its entire life cycle and become a beneficial to a plant rather than being a pathogen. Wow. Yeah. So, so, but this is all population dependent, right? So, what, right. what, in, what can we do with that information? Is is we can we can really focus on making these balanced populations, and where can we find those? Well, in a forest. You know, there's sometimes you'll see like vast amounts of open ground with, you know, not a whole lot of vegetation, but some unique plants growing. And a lot of that is driven by these quorum signals. But if you go in and and change that, if you go, say, like disturb the soil, for instance, by you go through and till or whatever, then you actually change the quorum sensing and all of these seeds are allowed to germinate that have always been there in the seed bank. Uh, so what what's in the soil you know that is keeping these things suppressed is which in korean natural farming they call it soil leaf mold and you know uh we're just looking at the humus layer right this top layer is just absolutely rich with microbes and the soil underneath these microbes is is light and fluffy and well aerated and further down where there's less oxygen it's still it's still less compacted and there's a high degree of mineralization happening. But when we go through and and rapidly change that environment, we basically kill a lot of people. But we, what we really do is is we bring the populations to different levels and that chemical signaling changes entirely. So we do this in the vineyard all the time, too. We we don't understand that our actions are reshaping the entire ecological balance of our soil and we'll go through and we'll till and suddenly get a rapid growth of a whole bunch of weeds that we didn't want, Right, <laughs> which is funny. Right. And then that triggers for us, uh, hand labor or more mowing passes and what mowing. And, you know, some people are like big deal, you mow. well, compaction, which is usually caused by heavy machinery on the soil is also an excellent way to throw off this um, quorum sensing. So quorum sensing, if 
in uncompacted soil can it can be a whole field it can be a whole side of a mountain depending on on you know how how uninterrupted the signals are right but so compaction compaction is a huge one compaction is probably the biggest reason we have un, unhealthy soils we drive on them all the time and mm. we essentially create these brick barriers between vines between rows between fields and that that really matters that really matters because you know that soil that we're blocking that's how our plants get fed those are the guys that are literally fermenting rocks to give us minerals right so when we mess with that ferment or we cut them off from each other we start basically basically just destroying our ability to produce our own fertilizer, like right there at the plant base. So, I mean, this sounds like a, a strong argument for a grazing based type of viticulture oh, where you have God. animals. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. No, it is <laughs> yeah. absolutely the, the future. Um, bringing animals back onto land is yeah. absolutely the future. I mean, it's so silly that we took them off because that's what we did. We, we yeah. took them off. So they were supposed to be there. We removed them. And then we saw a massive die off of our soil. Right. You, um, you know, the, the old Wendell Berry quote, right? We had this beautiful solution and then neatly divided it into two problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where we, when, when we separated the animals from the, from the farm, essentially, or from the, from the crops, basically. Yeah. I, I mean, the remineralization, I mean, it's honestly just they're constantly dropping out microbes in their feces and urine and these are microbes that are living on the vegetation that already exists in that area so they are the right microbes for the right area but then they get to be basically cultured rapidly inside the warm happy gut of a you or something and then immediately returned right back to place and increasing the population of those microbes exponentially you don't need right. that much um, manure to rapidly increase soil biology. Uh, but the one, I mean, the other thing we did besides removing animals is we removed genes. Um, by selective breeding over years and years and years, the, we've bred out the ability for many plants to continue to receive these quorum signals or quorum sensing, oh, wow. which is why we have so much disease in vinifera. A lot of those genes that were there are no longer there or they're there, right? The genes maybe are there, but they forgot how to access them. But yeah. sometimes the genes aren't there, but the pathway is still there, which is really where this is this idea of quorum sensing is um, applicable. So, so we bred out these genes. We know that American varieties have a lot of these genes still. So we, we crossbreed with them to bring these, these genes back. But the pathways are often still there. And the microbes remember the pathway. The plant doesn't. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like if you like dated somebody in like middle school and then you saw them as an adult and you didn't remember them, but they're like, hey, dude, I remember you for sure. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I, if just as an aside, we, I have, we just released a wine with Centralis called hello, old friend. And the label is a picture of the earth saying that to, to us, you know, it's mm -hmm. the, the earth is saying hello, old friend. And it, it's, 
that exact idea is why why I made that label was that we may have forgotten that relationship, but the earth hasn't. No, we, yeah, the earth has not. <laughs> it's, so there's something called uh, syst- like systemic induced resistance or systemic acquired resistance. And this is a fascinating study. They're, they're doing some pretty hard work on this at uh, Oregon State University, Laurent Deluc, uh, professor. He's been studying these pathways and trying to develop RNAi um, products that you can basically trigger these old pathways, which is really interesting and and um, it's it's really not even that complicated. I mean, it, I'm sure like the study and research and everything that's gone that's gone into it is complicated, but it really is just like knocking on a door that the plant forgot was there, and then or it's more like rushing in a door that the plant forgot was there, and and telling it to behave a certain way. Um, mm. There's uh, broader implications for that kind of technology that we can get into maybe. But um, the interesting thing about these forgotten pathways is that the same sort of thing that RNAi drugs can induce, trichoderma can induce. So, so a soil mold, a lowly soil mold can go on a plant, knock on a door that you know the plant forgot was there, tell the plant, hey, disease is coming. You need to start taking this seriously and the plant will um, through pathways that, you know, the plant didn't even know that it had. And so this implies then that if we go in and till and remove the environment for these things, we're we're removing the ability for the soil to tell the plant to take care of itself. Does it go even further than just protection? Does it does the soil... Do the, does the communication with the soil also impact? Um, I mean, this this idea of quorum sensing and epigenetics does it does it actually impact the like the flavor of wine ultimately? Like what gets expressed, what what pheromones? Uh, you know, I, I I don't know all the biology that goes into making grapes, but like, is this something that you can talk to? Is it like yeah? Are, are, no, yeah, ab- like, absolutely. So the yeah. grapevines, their number one. Uh, defense is something that we find just absolutely delicious. Phenolics, flavonoids, anthocyanins, all of these things are um, able to either prevent prevent cellular oxidation or uh, they can prevent predation by insects. And what the, what that, this induced and systemic resistance does basically is you will get a release of um, salicylic acid, which is the same thing in aspirin and, you know, uh, willow bark, those kinds of things. Aloe vera uh-huh. has tons of it. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, anyway, it triggers the salicylic pathway, which produces jasmonic acid, which then produces ethylene and a whole ho- host of other hormones are triggered by this. And so the plant goes into overdrive, producing all of these uh, you know, things to protect itself. And that only increases flavor and color, which is really interesting to think about. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) It's really interesting (laughs) to think about. Um, so, man, so you said epigenetics and epigenetics is, um, basically the environment triggering, um, a gene expression. So there's tons and tons and tons of genes in your body. They're not all being 
transcribed and replicated within the cell at any given moment. Um, it's usually, usually there's an order of things or, but basically the environment will, can tell the cell, hey, these are your conditions or the cell can see the environmental conditions. That's actually an easier way of saying it. Mm-hmm. And it will, based on those environmental conditions, express certain genes that are necessary. Uh, your, your body does this all the time. Uh, based on environmental conditions, certain genes will express. Uh, drought conditions in plants will express certain genes. There's loads and loads and loads of, of these kinds of, of things. And this is what actually leads toward um, evolution of a species. We used to think that evolution of a species was solely related toward, um, you know, who, who adapts best to the environment. You know, if you, if you don't die, you breed and your good genes are passed on, which there's something true to that. But recently we've discovered that speciation can happen incredibly fast. Um, there's new there since we started studying like the Galapagos Islands, there's been several new species of finches, which is <laughs> which is really funny because we thought forever it would take millions of years. But what happens is is the environment will cause a gene expression. And when that when you're actually, you know, when you have offspring, if those genes are switched on, then your offspring can be born with those genes switched on. And that and it and so that obviously triggers very fast. So there is a survive and adapt. If you don't have anything switched on, you could definitely die. And, and that part of basic evolution is true. But you can actually you can actually change genetic expression within yourself, um, which is is that is is another way of saying that that it's not just like um, fitness in this idea of Darwinian evolution isn't just about strength and you know, dominance, but it's about like who has the most connection to its world and its environment and everything wow. in it. That's really beautiful. I hope so. I hope that's what I'm saying. Um, this is amazing. Uh, keep going. Don't let me stop. You. Oh, I just okay. wanted to. So, yeah. So if we know that it's quorum sensing and all of this stuff and that we can trigger pathways with microbes, then we should we should breed a lot of these microbes, right? These specific microbes like trichoderma, and we should just, we should spray them all over or soak our soils with them. That's the obvious conclusion, um, but that's not entirely true either. We're talking about population balance. So even if you're going in and spraying a biological, yeah, it, it works, but you're also throwing off the entire soil ecology by introduction of, you know, trillions of these little critters that aren't from there. Wow. So that's just something to think about, you know, like there should definitely be more study on the effects of biological and long-term ecology of a site. And that's why you shouldn't spray, you know, the same mold or the same bacteria, every single spray, you should, you should mix it up for sure. Got it. But I'm not saying that those things are wrong. I think they're wonderful tools, but there's other ways to achieve this microbial balance or, and, you know, from your site, uh, really interesting when, well, when I was, when I was young and growing up and, and thinking about, um, human health and, and, uh, you know, living soil, I started realizing over, over reading, you know, that a lot of the diseases that we face are because of uh, microbial imbalances in our gut. 
And that can be, you know, caused by diet, environmental conditions, many, many things. But he started reading about fecal transplants and and people that are receiving the, you know, somebody else's poop. They are, you know, not miraculously, but they recover from these chronic immune diseases, right? Wow. Because because our immune system is very, very influenced by the microbial balance of our gut. If you're, right. if you have the wrong microbes, they can tell your immune system. They can constantly be sending this signal saying, saying attack, 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 and so your immune system will constantly attack you, and that causes things like Crohn's disease. Um, God, so rheumatoid arthritis, things like right. this, where it's your body attacking you over and over and over. It can be entirely dictated by gut health. And so I thinking about that, you know, that just like was like, okay, so naturally, we're supposed to be full of this balanced microbes. And at the time I was um, growing fun plants indoors. And I started learning about uh, living soil and compost teas, people like uh, he goes by the name Clackamas Coots, who has a reading library, you can Google that he talks a lot about living soil and how to make these living soils. And so then I had to spend a lot of time figuring out how do I, how do I make this indoor environment ecologically rich? And that was through the use of compost teas and microbes and things that feed the soil population, not the plant. So then I moved away from buying any sort of fertilizers whatsoever, besides making a a good uh, mineral rich soil and started and started focusing on just growing the soil. And the plants were extremely healthy. A lot of people um, don't give credit, I think, to the research that's gone on by citizen scientists that just like to get stoned. There's been yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the use of kelp, you know, in vineyards, yeah. strongly influenced by ganja growers using kelp who right. were strongly influenced by things they saw while traveling to Asia to get seeds, you know, like their uh, cannabis community, I think deserves quite a bit of credit for some of the more technical knowledge we have of, of I, these fertilizers. It's amazing. You say that I actually reached out to some cannabis growers to come on the podcast um, because that's what, I mean, I was like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of science that goes into, vineyards for sure but the level of scientific knowledge of just the a guy that has a garage grow (laughs) exceeds like literally like 90 percent of what's in viticulture out there it's crazy like like these guys have dialed it in so crazily and have so much knowledge um it's yeah that that (laughs) it's like really hats off to the cannabis growers there's a ton of you know like knowledge there that is definitely transferable to anything that we're growing yeah Um, it's funny you say that i agree i you know and i i also have to say a lot of a lot of veggie farmers have really have really dialed especially the organic guys have really dialed down some really cool processes and which just i just want to say this you should be growing more than one kind of plant always if you're a (laughs) farmer you should have a veggie garden there's so much to learn about the seasonal conditions and about your soil and about plant health by growing more than one thing. So yeah. go out there and garden. <laughs> well said. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's yeah, a so- lot 
I would say the other the other place to look for a lot of these ideas is because they were largely adopted. These cannabis ideas were largely adopted from indigenous cultures um, or largely adopted from specifically Korea, who there's a, a, a farm, the institute there called the Jadam Institute, headed by Young Sung Cho. They are doing really, really cool things. They're trying what, to... Can you repeat the name of the institute? Uh, uh, Jadam, Jadam. I don't know how to pronounce it, honestly. It's J-A-D-A-M. Okay. No, that's fine. Yeah. Just so you know, we can, we can research that, uh, find out more. Thanks. Yeah. So they're doing just absolutely incredible work, working with just what they have on site and proving that you can make everything you need. You can essentially go jugless. You don't need to buy anything. These microbial processes, once you understand them, you can start to shift your operation toward microbial health of the total site. And they're doing things like, you know, growing potatoes, boiling potatoes, mashing the potatoes up, putting it in water, and then throwing a handful of forest humus in and letting it ferment for several days. Just Uh anybody can do that for the most part. Yep. You, yep. you don't need to do potatoes. You just need basically a microbial food. So any sort of carbohydrate, you could use sugar, which the Korean natural farming people aren't super into, but I do it um, or we do it at, at JK Carrier. We have started making compost tea, um, With, highly so irritated. When, when, when you say sugar, are you using molasses? Or are you actually using straight sugar? No, what? we're using, we're using uh, unsulfured molasses. Yeah. Okay. But uh, in, in smaller and smaller quantities now, though. But the, the last brew we did, I, we had cut the sugar in half, and it took a little bit longer to uh, achieve the results that we wanted, which you can see by um, bacterial films, and which are just basically tons of bubbles on top of the tea. And right. so... That took a little bit more time to cut the sugar in half, but I definitely think the way forward is using something that is a little bit slower to be processed so you can kind of get a more balanced growth. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so you so they take this native soil from the site, from a rich growing area of the site, and they blow this up in this population, and then they spray this or water this in um, all over their their property. And... They have some of the most beautiful looking produce around and they're doing all of this without paying any money to a large corporation who really has set up the agriculture industry to bleed them dry. Right. And anyway, so and, and these bacterial films are pretty amazing. Bacterial films are they're not necessarily in themselves alive, but what they are is basically bacterial cities or mycorrhizal cities or mold cities, they excrete this this gel-like substance that contains all the nutrients that they need. So they'll store nutrients there. They'll transfer nutrients uh, to each other because not all microbes are mobile. Uh, most of them aren't. So they will, like staff, staff does this. Um, Staphylococcus, which you, if you've ever had a boil, you've seen the goo coming out. It's a mixture of plasma and bacterial film. It's just a way for the population to stay in one place and, and feed itself. Hmm. So the implications for that in farming is that if we create these bacterial films, these 
these microbe cities and we spray them on our plants or in our soil, we're not only providing microbes, but we're providing them a home and uh, plumbing and all those things. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I was going to ask with all of this, can we talk about practical application in viticulture? Sure. Um, practical application. Like, yeah, what are you doing in the vineyard? What is the timing of what you're doing? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Great. So I, I don't want to, we're still working uh, this out and working on it. So I don't want to misrepresent and say that we've got a dialed in system. Got it. Like this isn't necessarily the way to do it. This is the way you are doing it. Yeah. Practical. And, yeah, and, and we're still, mind. we're still testing it out, but the, so we're making highly aerated compost teas currently, and we have fermented some weeds from the property and that's currently aging. And, um, I think we're going to probably try it out on the veggie garden first at work, uh, just to make sure that we're not doing anything crazy, but no, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, will you spray that, um, in, on the soil only or up into the canopy and on the, you know, the, up in the philosphere or just yes on the soil? everywhere yeah so so yeah the the leaves <laughs> you're gonna fly over with a helicopter and carpet bomb that vineyard with compost tea god i hope so we were just talking about that the other day <laughs> i was talking about getting getting less traffic tractor passes in and and my <laughs> boss joe going was like well why don't we just get a crop duster and i was like whoa no we should <laughs> that'd be amazing right. <laughs> so so practical application of this is is in the fall and in the spring when the soil is still wet and okay. the plants are just coming out, um, you can spray a compost tea and you can inoculate these fresh shoots with, you know, something really healthy for them. These microbes grow on leaves too. They hang out around the stomata on the under, underside of leaves and on top of them. And they just sit there and some of them will like fix phosphorus right out of the air or fix nitrogen right out of the air and continue to feed and foster relationship with a plant throughout the, that growing cycle. Or you can spray something to kill them all, um, which is what right. most people are doing. Right. So now, well, now is that, I guess that's my other question in doing this is your hope to just increase vitality or are you actually trying to outcompete mildews like powdery? Yeah, no, absolutely outcompete and, and vitality, so that you, both of those and that, things. And thereby, like, are you trying to eliminate the use of things like stylet oil or other, you know, things to, you know, other fungicide, fungicidal oils in the vineyard? Um, yeah, we, we didn't use any. Um, JK has maybe used it in the past. I honestly don't know. I'd have to ask Jim. But okay. uh, we're not planning on doing stylet oil. No, we, it, we're doing the opposite. Instead of total suppression, we're trying to just... Inoculate. Like I said, most of these things aren't mobile until they spoilate. Then they're everywhere. But okay. it's really just kind of like, besides the quorum sensing part, which is incredibly important, before, all we ever thought it was was just a space game. So we were like, we'll put this bacteria here and, and just occupy this area so this mold can't grow. And that part is true, but we don't need to do... It, that's not entirely true. The, sometimes the population doesn't even have to be that high. You don't need to take up the whole area. There's enough of somebody that sends out a signal that says, oh, hell no mold that, you know, right. just a few drops of it. It's enough to, to keep things at bay. So wait, you're growing 
Pinot Noir in Oregon, and you're saying you're not using any bottled fungicide of any kind? Oh, that's not true. We, we're using okay. sulfur. Um, sulfur, okay. Okay. Yeah, we're using sulfur, and, and sulfur, although it, it can be um, really stinky and hang out on you, like it has relatively low uh, environmental impact um, after, you know, seven days or 10 days. So, so and, and I'm just curious for my own use, uh, you, you would see an oil like Stylet oil or I don't know if you've looked into things like Cinerate or yeah, know, like the great product. Uh, are, I mean, are those more intense than sulfur, less intense? Or are they just a different kind of intensity? Uh, I think they're a different kind of intensity, different mode of action. Sulfur yeah. is is very cheap. Um, right. Well, there's that. Yeah. And sure. <laughs> and that should really be like because of because of the the cost of some of these products, it might be your farm's only option, especially. If you're right. only selling fruit and you're not making wine from it, your your right. money is that you make is basically the money you don't spend, and that's right. very difficult to do, uh, especially with right. grapes. Yeah. Okay. Great. I just wanted to clear that up. Okay. Um. So this this explains why on your Instagram, I've I've seen video of you sort of uh, dodging wolves to gather <laughs> forest duff. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no wolves i'm just you know, clown i know i know <laughs> it was very dramatic <laughs> um uh so so that's what you're you're actually gathering that you're using that to help inoculate these teas uh which then go into the vineyard well yeah and, the, and the the forest leaf mold that we that we harvested we uh-huh. were going to make into a tea, but it was too wet in the vineyard to okay. get out there. And so rather than get it out there for the sake of giving it, getting it out there, we have a very, very large compost pile from um, a little bit of, of horse bedding from our neighbor below and all of our grape pomace. And it. it was cooking rather slowly. Um, and so we decided to drench it with this uh, this last tea. Okay. Any but, any noticeable change since you drenched? Oh yeah, it took right off. I mean, that oh, wow. could also have been driven by the sugar in it, but it definitely is is producing more and more uh, a heat, which is something that people think you need to cook compost all the way. But I honestly don't believe that's true compost that is still very much biologically active is what you want to put on your soil unless it's a Got food it. crop that Got it. right because i mean at that point you're you might be fine and plants are covered and all sorts of these bacteria anyway but if you like i said population if the population of one thing is really huge on that one leaf that's how you know you People. can spread disease like yeah, specifically e. coli right but for perennials, uh, heck yeah, who cares? You can throw straight <laughs> grapes straight out on the vineyard right after pressing. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't have to you don't have to compost it. We we compost it at um at JK Carrier. Um, you know, just because we're we're not if it was my own personal vineyard, I would be doing uh some things differently, but you know, uh it's not my vineyard, so I'm Definitely. <laughs> well, I, I would think definitely not going to make Jim assume any risk that he didn't sign up for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the other advantage to composting grape hummus is, um, you know, like I've 
used fresh pumice to mulch some trees in my backyard and now i have a, a wild from seed grapevine forest um, <laughs> growing there so i think the one advantage is you you know, essentially could you know kill off the the germination rate of some of those seeds you know so you don't have wild grapes growing in your vineyard absolutely i would if you're gonna throw if you're gonna throw anything out there it should be it should be mark because that is essentially composted as well um Uh, yeah but the explain mark for anybody who doesn't know what mark oh so that's just what's left over after ferment so after you after you press off the grapes um right you know you're left over with the this great pomace um, that is is fully digested um, microbially and alcohol soaked seeds tend not to do very well in the wild um, well so that's that's um those are what i cast out and i'm telling you they germinated really well <laughs> <laughs> well never mind then <laughs> i went straight from the press and just dumped them and uh yeah they're, they're we've got <laughs> it's a jungle um <laughs> So the timing, I well, just want to go I think back. I, I will recant my statement then. Maybe you don't throw them all the way out there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in terms of the timing, you're saying you want some moisture in the soil, but you, like obviously you don't want it too moist where you're creating compaction by going and spreading it. I think that's what you were saying about that. Right. You're, you're, and, and you're being too, too moist right now. But. Fall for compost or for compost teas or any sort of soil inoculation um, is a really good time, mostly because it, it just gives you more time for these populations to develop before the right. next growing cycle begins. Right. So that, yeah, that's what I was wondering. It's, yeah, right. it's real. That's really the reason behind it. So you're you're throwing these things out there in the fall, and then if you're in Oregon, they're getting rained on. You know, every right all through the winter, every yeah. day. <laughs> Well, you're lucky. That's all I can say. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking about that here, where in the fall, I mean, that's when I'm doing it. But essentially, in doing that, you know, I mean, it's it hasn't rained for sometimes ten months <laughs> uh, here, and then it's you know, it, it might be a month before it actually does rain after spreading them out there. Um, but it still seems like I don't know, like there's no good time down here, so don't use. Southern California is any sunny, standard. Sunny, so I love it down there. My my uh, <laughs> in-laws live down in uh, Laguna Beach, which is every time I go down there, I'm like, I should move here, but what would I do? <laughs> exactly. Right. I know. I'm, I miss that, uh, being able to be in the vineyards more directly. Um, well, okay. Any, any, um, any way you want to... What, what else? I mean, like, I, I know, you know, I've kept you talking about this thing for a while and we've gotten to this sort of practical application stage of this mind-blowing knowledge is there anything you want to add um if i cut you sure i one thing that i did want to say is is you know as farmers like you should be taking back your independence because it's definitely been stolen from you like actively stolen from you uh the fact that you know you spend so much of your money on on resources to put out in the vineyard, you know, it's something that we've basically bought into. Um, we've been told that we're not the experts, right? That experts mm. um, from the outside are the people you should trust and listen to. But the the fact is, it's like even just the, you know, in the knowledge of quorum sensing, there's so much we don't know. We know about 1% of microbes. 
Like that's about it. Wow. So there's really just so much we don't know. And so it's okay to, to trust yourself and, and, and say, you know, there's got to be a way that we can do this ourselves, that we can do this on farm, which is a goal that uh, I think we have at JK is to try to figure out how we can stop off farm inputs entirely. Um, we've been doing lots of soil analysis and, you know, according to our pH, we need two tons of, of lime per acre, right, to bring our pH in balance. Well, if you look at, you know, the way that our soil is, we actually have all the, all the calcium in the world that we need. Um, it's just totally locked up. So, right. so bringing in a bunch of stuff, which, you know, the experts say we need is going to throw the calcium ratio completely off and right. then shut down availability of other things that are calcium dependent, you know, or that are dependent on, you know, uh, you know, not too much calcium. Right. So, so I, I just want to remind people that before we had experts and before we had jugs, all we had was literally us and, and the land and our observational skills. And what we, what we see and what we um, experience on our vineyard is going to be different from place to place, but it is your experience and, um, you know, it is what you see and you should definitely trust yourself. Um, you know, I would say that we've labeled too many things as unscientific because they're traditional and there is so much supremacy in that word, unscientific. Um, <laughs> and we really need to understand that like what we're, what we're discounting is, is millions of people's um, experience over thousands of years. And just because it doesn't fit our uh, bias doesn't mean that it's not true. And that goes, I mean, corn is one of the biggest crops in uh, America, even the world. And yeah. it, it doesn't come from Europe. It comes from here. It comes from the indigenous people here who had spent thousands of years growing it and knew how to grow it and knew different plant relationships and how those plants and animals coexisted and benefited each other because they didn't approach farming um, you know, through this idea of domination and, and suppression, they didn't feel like they were given dominion over the earth. Right. So right. they approached, um, many, many, many cultures. I'm not trying to broadly say all, um, you know, indigenous people have the same cultural practices, but everybody approached it, um, you know, from an idea of reverence as, um, you know, that the earth is of them and they need to respect and be compassionate. You know, there's many people that believe this around the world. Um, unfortunately, Westernism doesn't. We, we really believe that the earth was put there for us to do whatever we want with. And so if shifting gears and trying to approach your piece of property with compassion and understand that not all things are bad, all, not all bad things are bad and not all good things are good, but it's things in balance. You know, it's a better way, better way to view this entire system and to be compassionate about plant health. Um, you, you know, you have to really look at uh, the plant itself and its environmental conditions. Is it, are you driving, are you literally driving over its feet every day with a tractor? Like, that would suck for me. 
Um, I've done it. <laughs> and, you know, like, how will the weather, the impending weather, like maybe I'm going to go out there and hedge my vineyard, you know, right before we get a 115 degree day. That might really suck to like lose a limb and then get baked. Like, <laughs> we just have to, we just have to think about, about the farm in a compassionate way. And, you know, especially the, the land stewards and the people working the land, like, you know, there might be something that you, you need from them for your, your project to be successful, but like you need to be compassionate for everybody that surrounds you and, and listen and listen to their experience because you might have a plan, but their experience might be a better plan. And, you know, that's really where you should just learn to be wrong. Um, being wrong, I think, is, is probably the most important thing that anybody can learn to be, but especially a farmer. Um, it's, it's difficult to find out that everything that you thought you knew was wrong. Um, I do it all the time. I'm so wrong about th- I mean, look, I thought that there'd be no benefit from, or there'd be no consequence of throwing Mark out in the vineyard and you're telling me, uh, based on your experience, that that is not the truth. Like, <laughs> it's important. You'll never learn and you'll never, you know, you can't test everything out yourself, but you can listen to other people and their experiences and, you know, save yourself quite a bit of trouble by just being wrong in the moment and, and listening to people and and be wrong, and that is being compassionate toward yourself um, in a way. And it will res- result, you know, in a much uh, better chance of success uh, moving forward than if you think you have it figured out from the beginning. Because to be quite honest, we really don't know anything. We know, we think we know a lot until you start peeling back the layers, and then you realize you're really only like a few pages in to a very, very long book. <laughs> that's that's- well, good analogy, good metaphor. I, it's it sounds like it's also, I mean, for me, I, I you know, I've I've repeated this multiple times on this podcast about just even this exercise of doing this podcast. I you know I'll look back and be like, man, I just wish I'd shut up because I've you know what I thought then I don't think now, and it's only you know it was a day ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's I, I think the ability to to be able to laugh at yourself rather than let that humiliation and uh, uh, that humbling process bring you down. Like the, I guess the alternative would be to weep at how wrong you were. But if you laugh, it gives you the energy to, to keep trying and to be able to be wrong and, and uh, you know, get back out and try again and, and try to do better, try to learn from that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, uh, well, man, thanks so much. Um, I, 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 you have a cool Instagram. Do you want to say what that is? <laughs> Uh, it's do you Drew care barely. if people know? Do, no, oh, sorry. that's fine. It's, it's Drew Barely More. Drew Barely More. <laughs> okay. Um, you you're a character. I think it's a very entertaining Instagram. That's why I brought it up. Um, and people might actually learn some stuff uh, by following along. Yeah, my well. my wife it's, keeps pushing me to to not just be a clown, to be a very informative clown. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um. Well, thank you so much. It's really like this is I really appreciate you sharing all of this. And uh, I mean, it's it's amazing, amazing stuff. I, I mean, it sounds like as much as you're saying respect uh, these things that are considered, quote unquote, unscientific, you are very much a scientist and take that 
you know, seriously, yeah, obviously not well, too seriously, but I, I'm but saying that, I, yeah, I have a science degree, but, um, you know, what I, what I really took out of some of the things that I, I was learning in school, I got to study history of ecology and history of science. And what you learn when you study those things is that science changes their mind, like always. Right. And it might right, be, a, and it's almost always a fight, but it still changes its mind. Right. Science is a process, not a, not yeah, an answer. Exactly. It's a questioning process. In, a, in the light a, of new evidence, you know, like right. science can completely change everything. Um, you know, so, so that's, should also give you free reign to change your mind. That's <laughs> if massive institutions can change their mind, you can too. <laughs> Oh, that's a good good place to end. <laughs> thank you so much, Jerry. Really appreciate it. Yeah, like, thank you. Is... It was great.